welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Lauren Benneman, and I am a client advisor on the Institutional Defined Contribution Team here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And today, I am thrilled to be joined by Jennifer Wu, our Global Head of Sustainable Investing, and Leon Edelman, Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Portfolio Manager, to discuss many topics top of mind for investors, from ESG in a COVID-19 world to ESG in an investor's portfolio. We are very lucky to have them both on today. For some background on their roles, as the Head of Sustainable Investing for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Jennifer is responsible for leading the effort of creating innovative investment solutions using ESG factors to deliver both purpose and performance to clients in their portfolios. Leon is a portfolio manager within the Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities team and is responsible for our fundamental bottom-up portfolios, including GEM Discovery and GEM Focus Strategies. Jennifer and Leon, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Over the next 30 minutes or so, I will pose several questions to both Jennifer and Leon. So with that, let's get started. Jennifer, let's begin the conversation with you. ESG is top of mind for many of those dialed in today. I know I've had more ESG conversations over the last four months than I've had in the last 10 years, but it can also be a confusing topic. How do you explain what it is and what it's trying to achieve when speaking to clients? Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Indeed, ESG is top of mind for us as investors, but you know that's not actually all. It is also top of mind for corporates. And why is that? Well, the way we think about ESG is that it is actually a collection of factors that are not traditional. It's a collection of factors that are closely related to the input and output of a business operation. We see ESG as factors that we use to measure the sustainability of a company. And why do we think that it's important? Because more and more, we're actually seeing how a company's financial performance is now being impacted by its sustainability performance. So let me give you some examples. If we look at the E of ESG first, and E means environmental. So from an input perspective, this can be about where does a company source its electricity from, how efficient it is in consuming electricity. And if the cost of electricity goes down as a result of switching to, say, a renewable power source, or the cost of electricity actually goes down because the company decides to install LED lighting that is more energy efficient, that's actually good for the bottom line. So that's what we meant by, you know, looking at the input of a company's operation in the context of the E of ESG. And from an output perspective, we could also be looking at different things. For example, how wastewater is being treated. And it's important because if it's not properly dealt with, a company could be fine and suffer financial losses. So metrics such as energy consumption or wastewater management are not your typical metrics that you can find in, say, like financial statements. However, they are very important from a financial impact perspective. And if we look at the S, which means social, it generally covers what we call stakeholders. And that includes customers, employees, suppliers, and communities. The most important input 
of a business operation in today's world is actually labor. So a company's ability to attract and promote talent is key to its financial success, as we all know. We look at labor management, compensation, benefits, and also diversity and inclusion for that reason. From an outputs perspective, how is a company treating its customers through the provision of products and services? If it's a toy company, for example, product safety is of paramount importance because if it's not dealt with seriously, it could hurt children, which may result in litigation, fines, and even reputational damages. So in our view, a company's relationship with stakeholders are really key to its financial success, and it actually gives the company the license to operate. And the last part of ESG, which is the G, and it means governance. The way I think about G is that it's actually the foundation of all things. So it's about the foundational structure of a company. As you could imagine, in that regard, typical G issues include things like long-term capital allocation strategy, tax evasion, business ethics, board effectiveness, and independence. These are all critical issues, not for moral reasons, but they are key ingredients for a company to be successful. So in a nutshell, ESG are different factors that impact the sustainability of a company and a company's ability to generate consistent and repeatable returns. And if you look at it through the lens of input and output, what you will find is that the ESG factors that matter to each company can actually be quite different because of its specific business models, as well as the industry that it's in, or even the country that it's in. So using ESG in investing is to have a more comprehensive assessment of all the risks and opportunities that a business operation faces. And then we make an investment decision with the goal to deliver better risk-adjusted return. And that's what we regard at J.P. Morgan as integrating ESG factors into investment is all about. Thank you, Jennifer. That reminds me of the call that we had last week when we had Sustainability Week talking about sustainable investing as fully informed investing. So thank you for that. Leon, shifting over to you, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing across the emerging markets equity universe and the importance of ESG factors in your portfolio decision-making? Sure. I mean, I think from a client perspective, there's been an interest in ESG for many years. I think the main difference that I perceive is that this has really become much more important to North American-based investors over the course of the last year or two, whereas certainly there are parts of Europe where this had been incredibly important to clients for longer than that. So from that perspective, I think we've been speaking to clients about this for a long time now. And where it's relatively easy for us to do is simply because we explain to all of our clients that the way that we think about ESG is inextricably linked to the way that we think about investing in that everything that we do from an investment perspective is to set out our views of where businesses will be over the very long term. And clearly, the longer you think about the investment horizon for a business, the more important ESG factors become. And that ultimately, the way that a business deals with all stakeholders involved is going to have a direct bearing of how long that business will be around for. And so, again, from an investment perspective, ESG is something that we have integrated into our investment framework and have had integrated into our investment framework for over a decade now. 
We really haven't had to change anything to bring ESG and make it front and center, but we have obviously taken the opportunity to, as Jennifer said, you know, welcome the fact that companies themselves have recognized that this is an incredibly important part of what they do to sharpen the tools with which we can determine who's doing a good job, who isn't, what the right metrics should be, who is best in class, and how we can potentially engage with those that aren't to bring them down the line. So, again, from an investment perspective, this has been there for a very long time. From an engagement perspective, I think that we're doing a lot more. And then from a tools perspective, again, because there's that much more information available, I think that we have done a good job in bringing in all of the potential bits of information that could help us make better decisions around how these topics could impact, again, those businesses over the very long term. Thank you, Ryan. Jennifer, back to you. Given COVID-19, a lot has changed about the way we operate on a day-to-day basis. Jennifer, how has the virus accelerated the ESG agenda and brought it even more to the forefront than it was before? So the virus, the pandemic, it has really made the ESG agenda more important than ever before, in our view. If there's one thing that we've learned from this crisis, it has to be that we must be better prepared for the next crisis. And, you know, what we have seen in the last few months is that companies that had had placed ESG consideration. So as I mentioned earlier, it's not just on top of mind for investors, but for a lot of companies for quite some time already. So companies who had had placed ESG as part of their business strategy are proven to be much more resilient. We saw how companies that had focused on the S of ESG by always putting employees first, they were able to do a much better job at ensuring that there is good support in place to help their workforce. We also saw how companies that had focused on good capital allocation strategy, they were better equipped to deal with liquidity crisis. And this has become very prominent in, say, Leon's world, for example. And that's why it's not surprising to see how even in a well-diversified portfolio, companies with better ESG profile have performed well. And we must recognize that At the end of the day, we are very closely linked to nature, and we're very closely linked to one another. Sustainability issues such as climate change, social inequality, they're not some separate problems that we as investors or those in the business world don't have to worry about. A very important key takeaway from this pandemic, I hope, is that businesses can sometimes be the cause of these environmental and social problems which could in turn make these companies' growth unsustainable. At the same time, we also see how some companies are actually providers of solutions to these problems. So when it comes to asset allocation and investment decisions, obviously we want to avoid those risks, and we also want to be able to tap into these new investment opportunities. Everything is interlinked. And that's really what ESG can give you, a more thoughtful and comprehensive way of analyzing the situation, be it during normal times or in a pandemic like this, and also use that as a way to deliver a more forward-looking approach when it comes to investing. Thank you, Jennifer. Speaking of COVID-19 and how that's impacted ESG, both Jennifer or Leon, I pose this question to both of you. How did ESG perform? during COVID-19, what are some of the lessons that we've learned? Plan sponsor or fiduciary performance is something that they always consider. So what have we learned during this crisis? 
I would just chime in here. In a way, it's a confirmation of what we expected in that businesses that have managements that have taken these issues seriously were able to respond to the threat and do the right thing. And to me, I think by giving examples, we can kind of get that point across. You've got companies like Yum China, for example, going out of their way to extend healthcare coverage for their employees to make sure that their employees felt comfortable and in fact, going kind of way beyond what other Chinese companies have been doing in terms of covering other members of the household when they didn't have to. And ultimately, that just improves the way that employees feel about the company. It has meant that they have had no issues bringing employees back to the restaurants to get them back open. And it has meant that they have, in fact, been able to get back to pre-COVID type occupancy levels and restaurant levels faster than anybody else. And I think at the end of the day, a company is like an ecosystem and a very big part of that is driven by your own employees. And so operationally, you've had, again, businesses that have been able to rise to the challenge and have been better. Businesses that were not prepared, that did not have the right structures in place have suffered. So I think, again, ultimately, this just reflects the fact that the right management recognize that they need to invest in ESG-related topics because ultimately that's what extends their own duration. This was pretty much a trial by fire, but the best companies kind of rose to that occasion. And it's visible, forget stock price terms, it's visible in operational terms. Yeah, I will echo what Leon just said. I think if you really bring it back to looking at you know, a business operation, right, you look at input and output. Companies who have been thinking about how to operate in a more energy efficient way or, you know, who's been, to Leon's point, taking care of its employees and customers, they have been able to perform better and they have proven to be more resilient. So I think the lesson learned here is that these issues are going to be even more important, not because of one crisis, but as a matter of fact, I think this crisis has shown how it is very important to, when you make investment decisions and decide whom to invest in, that you are picking companies that are thinking about the most optimal way of doing business and also are taking care of all the stakeholders that are involved because these are the kind of companies that could actually generate long-term and repeatable financial return. And that's what you're looking for. So I think ESG as an agenda is more important than ever before. Many thanks to this pandemic in a way because it served as a good reminder of how resiliency is actually very important. And there are lots of issues you need to take into consideration when you run the business beyond what's out there on the balance sheet. Absolutely. I believe we can all agree that 2020 has been extremely enlightening in how businesses are run. We also recently released a white paper on the impact of governance and social factors on portfolio construction. Jennifer and Liam, I'd like to get both of your opinions on my next question. How can these factors influence portfolios' objectives and returns? Maybe I can take this one first. So, Lauren, you touched upon a very important word here, objective. One of the things that gets investors sometimes very confused about ESG is really around whether ESG equals to exclusions or whether ESG requires you to sacrifice return. In reality, the answer is yes and no. And why is that? Because it really depends on what the objective is. So like I mentioned earlier, ESG by definition is a collection of E, S, and G factors. And they are information that a investor can use to best align with his or her objective. So if I look at how we do it at JP Morgan Asset Management, for all of our funds, 
and I'm not just talking about sustainable funds, but all of our funds, our portfolio managers explicitly consider social and governance factors in such a way that it can add value. It means is that when we look at these factors, we focus on the ones that are financially material because our objective is to use ESG as an additional input in our investment process to create better risk-adjusted return. And this is what we call traditional investing that's ESG integrated. There is another type of objective, if you like. So separately, we also have a dedicated sustainable strategies. And in those, the way we think about ESG and how we use ESG is that we have a defined set of sustainable objectives that will prevent us from investing in certain companies or sectors. And the objective of these funds are not just about making financial return. Some of these objectives are not necessarily purely based on financial materiality. So here we use ESG to identify those companies and sectors for either exclusionary or inclusionary investing. So an example could be if the objective is to promote better access to education. We would only invest in companies that provide goods and services that can enable better access to education. And in this instance, we will be looking at a S factor and focus on the output of a company to identify those who actually provide goods and services that enable its customers to gain access to education. So because it's not driven by financial materiality, return is actually secondary. So this is a different way of using ESG in investment strategy, whereby you actually have dual objectives. So in a nutshell, I think you touched upon a very important point because objectives are directly linked to returns. So it's very, very important to understand what is it that you're trying to achieve, and then we can show you ways on how you can best use ESG to achieve that. I'll chip in here. I mean, I think from my perspective, this is an important one because there's more resistance to it in North America as well. But every time the topic comes up, I think that people start to think that you can't get something for free, right? You have to give something up to be, you know, on the ESG bandwagon or to be sustainable. And I just can't subscribe to that because ultimately, if what you're looking to achieve is to identify businesses that believe have the ability to be much larger over time, then a key component of that is the assessment of whether that business will be around and in what state and whether its existing fundamentals are not sustainable in the sustainable sense, but sustainable in that there's something that you can comfortably predict into the future. And so ultimately, there's no way to differentiate between taking a long-term view around the quality franchise and making an assessment around its ESG qualifications. And There's been some studies, notably a recent one from Harvard, making the case that companies with very good ESG qualifications tend to trade at a premium multiple to the market. And again, if you kind of roll that back, what does that mean? It means investors are willing to pay a higher multiple of earnings, i.e. more years into the future for a business with good qualifications. To me, that's quite simply a confirmation of the fact that that then tells you that there is more confidence with which you can predict the fact that those earnings will be around well into the future. So the market itself is also telling you that businesses that satisfy this criteria correctly are worth more. As an investor, I'm looking for businesses that will be worth more. So clearly, these two things, the goal of a portfolio and the way that a business deals with all stakeholders, these are kind of one and the same thing, really. 
land, clearly ESG practices are something that you take into consideration when making investment decisions. But how are you and your team thinking about ways to improve how we evaluate ESG and incorporate it into our research? Yeah, so like I said, this kind of started off as qualitatively discussing the topics around how we assess a business. Then we went into what we called the risk profile, which was, you know, 98 questions about a business of which maybe two-thirds were environmental and governance-related. And we've kind of taken it a step further where we have asked all of our analysts to go through a process, which we call our materiality framework. And within this, we've effectively broken up our universe into industry subgroups where every single industry subgroup is a little bit different. I mean, you know, an energy company is going to have very different ESG type priorities than, for example, a retail company. And so by looking at those 54 sub-industries, you can have a much better assessment of where materiality issues are similar. At the end of the day, by having our analysts go through this, we end up moving ourselves away from using external data, which we find to be wholly unreliable. And again, we can use the judgment that those analysts have around what matters for business and you know how that business is engaging to have a better understanding of how those businesses are working. And ultimately, that's going to have an impact on how we value those businesses and how we assess that business's duration. So by going through this process, we also have an idea of who is best in class and who isn't. And that then also enables us to engage with companies directly. If we have a company who is clearly carrying the banner on a particular topic, well, the next time we meet a company that isn't, we can say, well, look, you know, look at what these guys are doing. Look at how they've addressed this issue and look at how the market is then rewarding them or how they're able to do a better job. You know, this is something that you should be going towards. It allows you to understand very quickly when you know, you come across a business that isn't actually doing a good enough job. In your mind, business is just worth that much less. So in terms of our understanding about a business and, again, the accuracy with which we can forecast where that business qualitatively, forget stock prices, where that business will be four or five years down the line, it's just made us that much sharper on that assessment. Lance, you talk a lot about active engagement. And as a fundamental bottom-up investor, you spend a significant amount of time meeting with the management of emerging markets businesses. What are your thoughts on the role that engagement can play in actually improving ESG practices? Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly important. I think the, the main change that I perceive here is that you go back five years, companies kind of paid lip service to ESG, but you know, the person in charge of ESG might have been kind of in some sort of back office writing a report that eventually got shared with the board and not taken seriously. And now I think, again, if you're the chief executive of the business, you are immediately aligned towards extending the duration of your business. And you recognize that the person who is responsible for your business's adherence to ESG is incredibly important. And ESG is given prominence in annual reports and prominence in board meetings and prominence on the CEO's agenda, which means that by extension, when we engage, this is a topic which goes to the top of the house and it's a topic which is ultimately incredibly important to the way that those executives themselves are going to be judged. And so we find that they're incredibly receptive. I think that we are in an incredibly privileged position to be able to engage simply because we have more analysts 
and more people on the ground and see more companies than most others. You know, the Emerging Market Asia Pacific team does something like 5,000 company meetings a year. You know, we've got nearly 45 analysts who are dedicated to covering these companies who can be a source of information to the companies with which they're engaging. To my point, if you can say, well, you know, you rank pretty poorly here, this is what the best in class is doing. Well, nobody's going to refuse good information, right? So they're getting a much more receptive experience from the corporates with which they're dealing with. And I think ultimately, from the positive side, I think that we are also able to see positive change. And companies say, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let me get back to you. And then next thing you know, it's in their annual report, and it's been an important topic that they've brought in. And so we've really tried to address all sorts of topics from E to S to G that kind of runs the gamut. It's things like, you know, how much water waste goes into making a liter of beer to understanding how well employees in textile factories in Southeast Asia and China are being treated. You know, we kind of run the gamut in terms of the types of topics that we would cover with corporates. Wow, that is quite active engagement. And that leads me to another topic that's been coming up in a lot of my client conversations. Jennifer, active management in the context of ESG. Can you give us your take on this? Yeah, sure, Lauren. So I already spoke a lot about how ESG factors can be very different depending on the company's business model, right, and the industry that it's in, as well as the location of the business operation. So what this means is there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to ESG. To be able to do this well, we need a very good understanding of the individual company and the sector in order to be able to discern what ESG factors are most relevant. So it's not possible to have one way of calculating ESG risk and apply to all companies in the same way. And if you think about it, investing is really about making a prediction of the future. And it's not possible to make a good prediction by only just looking at historical data published by companies, for example. So, you know, a company may have suffered from cyber attacks in the past. And if we only rely on backward-looking public data, such as numbers of attacks, we would assume that this company faces great risk in customer data privacy, which is an ESG issue. So it's usually categorized as an S issue, by the way. And this is the way that many third-party ESG data vendors would do. So in that sense, we would probably give this company a bad S score. However, past attacks don't necessarily mean that the company will face similar level risk in the future. So what we do with active ESG research is that we can identify companies that have learned the lesson from the past and have put in measure to better manage such future risks. And this type of information is not necessarily disclosed anywhere, and sometimes it could be really qualitative. So to me, this is when an active research and investment management process can really differ because we can capture this type of forward-looking information from our interactions with the companies as well as our additional due diligence that we do. And it's not possible to do that without analysts on the ground, like Leon said, who actually know the company really well, have the ability to influence companies, and can continue to track progress. Right? So engagement together with active research and active investment management are inseparable in my view, and that's what you need. And what's also needed is domain knowledge and expertise in sustainability issues. A lot about ESG is still evolving. For example, translating climate change science into investable solutions is not always straightforward. 
And also the implications can be very different from sector to sector. So the way of how some of these ESG factors are constructed can also be outdated. For example, one forward-looking way of identifying potential controversies is to scrape through news and social media. However, most of these signals or factors are built based upon number of hits. And if I look at the recent scandal in Germany with the online payment company Wirecard, most controversies-related scores provided by third-party ESG data vendors actually looked pretty good before the scandal because there hadn't been a lot of coverage in the press or social media except for the report from Financial Times. So does that actually mean that one opinion should matter more than the others? And how do we even determine that? One of the things that we know for sure from this is that by just looking at the number of hits is not enough. There has to be a better way than just looking at this. And this is a real example of some of the research that we on the sustainable investing research team are doing now together with the sector analysts, going deep into individual companies, really understanding what are the ESG issues that matter, and also be able to identify ways to predict what is likely going to happen. So all in all, ESG research is active, it's dynamic, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and it cannot be purely based on historical data. So this is why I think active research and active investment management are required to really make ESG useful. Jennifer, one more for you. Given the state of the world, companies' diversity and inclusion efforts have been brought to the forefront. How do you view how our firm and how other firms should approach this, particularly from an investment standpoint? Well, Lauren, thank you so much for bringing this up because it's really very important and it's a financially material issue. Earlier this year, we published our JP Morgan Asset Management Global Investment Stewardship Priorities. One of those is around stakeholder management and specifically focusing on diversity and inclusion. What we have seen from the past few months is that not only diversity and inclusion is important during normal times, but in times like now, diversity and inclusion is even more important because to solve for a crisis like this and to be able to react in the most appropriate manner, you need diversity in thoughts and you need an inclusive environment to get everyone working together. What we have found is that a more diverse and inclusive workforce tends to have greater empathy, which really helps to bring people together and make companies more resilient. And this is why it was, it's part of our five global investment stewardship priorities because we don't believe that from an investment standpoint, a company can be successful for the long run without focusing on diversity and inclusion. Thank you, Leon and Jennifer. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, 
figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.